Well, good morning, Harvest family. Thanks, Roger, for hosting uh, this morning. Welcome to all of our guests. It's great to uh, be with you uh, this morning in this way. We are in Romans 6, as Roger just said, and we're going to be looking at the latter part of this chapter. But let's talk about choices as we get started here. You and I face uh, many choices in a day. And to be sure, during this pandemic and during a lockdown, you have fewer choices to make. The government has, in some ways, simplified uh, our lives yesterday, or I guess it was Friday, um, I said to Cheryl, hey, what do you want to do tomorrow? And she was like, I don't know, stay home. And that's pretty much the choice that you have every day, stay home. And, um, and so we face many choices, though, even in the midst of a pandemic, you know, like, what time should I wake up? What should I wear? You know, which pair of track pants should I wear? Uh, what to eat? What to watch on Netflix? Who to connect with on FaceTime? The next book I'm going to read? The next puzzle I'm going to do? Which intensity of Nespresso pod to brew? Whether or not I care about the snow covering the driveway? Should I buy an elliptical? The answer to that is not yet. Some of you, though, more seriously, you're deciding on jobs or housing or schooling or relationships. So many choices that we have to make on a day-by-day basis. The most important decision, of course, that anybody can make in an entire lifetime is whether or not to give their life to Jesus Christ. And once that choice is made... If you choose to become a follower of Jesus Christ, then it's a daily choice to live a righteous life in keeping with the moral character of God and the precepts of God's Word, or to put it another way, to daily choose to allow the power of the gospel, which is what this series is all about, to daily allow the power of the gospel to transform me. Are you choosing that today? Will you choose that on Monday morning and every day thereafter? Because that's where Paul takes us next in this latter part of chapter 6 in the book of Romans. Will I believe the gospel and will I choose righteousness in my day-to-day life? So let me read the passage, pray together, and then we'll get right into it. This is Romans chapter 6, verse 15 through to the end of the chapter. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit, fruit were you getting at that time from the thing, things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now, now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God 
is eternal life through Christ Jesus, our Lord. Amen. A great passage. Let's pray together and commit this time uh, to the Lord. Uh, Father, we know um, from the preacher in the book of Hebrews that your word is living, it is active, it is sharper than any two-edged sword. God, we know that it pierces to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow. We know that it is a discerner of the thoughts and intentions of the heart. And we ask simply that it would do that very thing right now in our own lives. In each each person who's listening, Father, pierce our hearts. Discern our thoughts. Discern the intentions of our hearts. And God, transform us through the power of your Holy Spirit in these moments. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, here we go. Um, I believe, this is in your notes, I believe the gospel. I believe the gospel and choose to live a righteous life. See this first. uh, By grace, by grace and not the law. Now, if you remember the last verse from last week's message, uh, Romans 6.14, he's building off of that now. He's going to answer another question or objection that is raised, and we've been pounding on this grace law, grace law nail. We've been pounding on this nail because Paul's been pounding on this nail, and ultimately the Holy Spirit who inspires, inspires the Word of God, ultimately the Holy Spirit is pounding on this nail because we have to hear what's being said because there's a huge point of struggle here for us to both grasp the idea of law and grace, but also to live it out daily. You and I can only be saved by grace, not the law. You and I can only live by grace. Grace is not just there to save us, but to keep us and to walk with us every step of the way. We can only live by grace, not by the law. All of your good intentions, all of your supposed moral living affords you no advantage in gaining the favor of God, in gaining salvation, nor do your good works even keep you. No part of the gospel, no part of the gospel, listen to this now, no part of the gospel involves works that curry God's favor in the saving or the sustaining of our salvation. Now, that said, Paul asks this rhetorical question in verse 15, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but under grace? And he answers emphatically the same way he answered the first question at the very start of Romans 6. He says, he he asks, first of all, what then? Are we to sin because we're not under law but grace? He answers emphatically, by no means, God forbid. Those of us who are saved are no longer subject to the power of sin in our lives, but must then, listen, choose not to sin. And Paul's writing this because evidently it's a problem. Evidently, Christians, after they give their life to Christ, continue to struggle with sin in their lives. We're saved We've received the blessing of God's forgiveness, and we still sin. I don't think this is just a Paul to the church in Rome problem. I know it's a challenge in my life. I'm sure it's a challenge in your life. 
Because listen, and this is what Thomas Schreiner said, because if one claims to be under grace and yet lives as a slave to sin, then the claim is nullified by one's conduct. Paul refused to accept any abstract understanding of grace separated from concrete daily living. When we have the grace of God in our lives, this gospel of grace is actively transforming us day by day, or else, to use Schreiner's word, our whole testimony, our confession is nullified by how we're actually living. To believe anything other than this, by the way, is to believe a gospel that is not the gospel of Jesus Christ. I believe the gospel. I choose to live a righteous life by grace, not by the law. And further, I approach this, see this next, as a slave of obedience, not of sin. It's going to come into sharper focus what we're talking about here as we move through the chapter. As a slave of obedience, not of sin, Paul asks another question of his readers in verse 16. Do you not know that if if you present yourselves, notice how active, intentional this is now. If you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one to whom you obey. That just makes sense. Again, Paul, when he writes, there's so much use of logic in what he writes. And so he says, there's only two options. Either of sin, you are going to present yourself as a slave one way or another, either to sin which leads to death, that doesn't sound great, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. Now think, I want you to think for just a moment. You're a slave of one or the other, sin or righteousness, obedience or sin. Which is it for you? Which one are you a slave to? If we're talking about obedience and righteousness, then we're talking about you being a slave to Christ. That's awesome. You're on the right path. But if you're a slave to sin, if you're a slave to money, if you're obsessed by it, if it's owning you, if you're a slave to anything in the sexual realm that's outside of God's sexual ethic, if you're a slave to power dynamics and control, if you're a slave to alcohol, drugs, if you're a slave to TV or gaming, if you're a slave to whatever it is, you're a slave to sin. And Paul lays it out. It's black and white. It's one or the other. It's two options. A slave to obedience or a slave to sin. Which is it for you? Now, you have to confess at this point that the imagery of slavery is a pretty provocative one because there's nothing, as we see slavery, there's absolutely nothing redeeming about slavery whatsoever. Though, at the time Paul is writing, it wasn't desirable, but it was certainly legal and accepted in the Roman Empire still wasn't something that anybody would desire to be. Those who were slaves would desire not to be slaves. Those who were not slaves would not want to become one. And Paul, in fact, admits later, if you just scan down to verse 19, the first part, he says that he's speaking in human terms. He knows that he's using an illustration that's a bit offensive, that people aren't fully going to grasp. It's inadequate. It's uncomfortable. But at least, we can, at least we can understand the basic principle behind ownership. At salvation, you have been transferred. You're always owned. You have been transferred from, from, from sin's ownership to God's ownership. One or the other is your master. 
If you're a Christian, the death of Jesus Christ on the cross purchased, this is a phrase we use, purchased your pardon. So you're either, you're either a master, you have sin as your master, or you have God as your master. It's one or the other. And, and I know in, in today's culture, it might be true that the largest category of, of non-believers are agnostics. Agnostics, by definition, are unwilling to say that there's no God. They leave open the possibility that there is a God. But an agnostic would say that if there is a God, God can't be known. There's no possible way to know who He is. And, and agnostics, by the way, have taken the time, at the very least, to think about the concept of God and are open to the possibility He exists and are very often upstanding citizens in whatever place you live. They're moral type people. They're agnostics. But please understand that there is no middle road here. There's no third option. You're a slave to sin or you're a slave to obedience. And so an agnostic who's willing to acknowledge there is a God but isn't willing to surrender to Him and isn't willing to admit that He can be known, and He can be known, those agnostics are slaves to sin. But as Christian, you, you again have given your life to Jesus Christ. He purchased your pardon. 1 Corinthians 6.20, Paul wrote, you were bought with a price. At the very end of this passage in verse 23, we hear that the wages of sin is death. In other words, someone's going to have to pay the price for your sin. And again, there's only two options for who's going to pay the price for your sin. Either you pay for your own sin, and by the way, you don't have the resources to pay for it, but either you make an attempt to pay for your own sin, pay for it with your own life, or Jesus pays the price for your sin. And I think you know the better option to give your life in full measure to the Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he, this is the, 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 the words of the old hymn, Charles Wesley, oh, for a thousand tongues to sin, he, sing, he, he breaks the power of canceled sin, he sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood availed for me. Be a slave of obedience, not a slave of sin. And be, notice this next, be committed to the Word. Committed to the Word, not rejecting it. Verse 17, but thanks be to God. Thanks be to God that you He's speaking specifically now to the Christians in Rome that you who were once slaves of sin, having just laid out these two options, he's going to identify with his readers, you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart. This is sincere. This is real belief. That you have become obedient from the heart to the standard, underline this phrase, to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Verse 18, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. Notice that they, they were committed to the standard of teaching. They were committed, in other words, to the gospel that Paul had taught to them. If we listen to voices other than the Lord's, if we listen to voices other than the Lord's, we are destined to end up in places that the Lord doesn't want us to be. 
On Thursday, this past Thursday evening, we hosted our, our latest uh, leadership series event with Dr. Tim Laniak. He's a professor, dean at Gordon-Conwell Seminary at their Charlotte campus, and we brought him in via Zoom room, and we had a wonderful night as he was teaching. Uh, one of the things that uh, Tim did that was so interesting and, and resulted in two books that he wrote uh, was he took his family to spend a year with Bedouin shepherds in the Middle East. And he did this because he, as he read the scriptures, as we read the scriptures, we see this, this metaphor that is throughout the Bible, uh, this meta- metaphor of shepherding. And we certainly don't know a lot about shepherding today. It's not part of our normal culture and, and yet this metaphor is so important for understanding our relationship to God and our relationship to one another. And so he's written these two books, and uh, one story that he tells is of a group of shepherds, various shepherds, various flocks, who had met for coffee for breakfast. The, uh, they were in Turkey, and uh, their various flocks were all around them, and they were grazing as they were enjoying breakfast together. One wayward sheep from one of the flocks started wandering away, wandering down a path, a well-worn path that actually led to the edge of a cliff, and, and that sheep went over the edge of the cliff to the bottom of the gorge. Now, now sheep are, are wired to um, follow, to keep their heads down, and this phrase is important, to, to follow the tail in front of them. That's why they flock. That's why they're able to, to be led together as a group, as a flock. So they're wired to keep their heads down and follow the tail in front of them. And so you can imagine at this point what actually happened. In fact, the Associated Press reported on this, and Tim writes this in his book. First one sheep jumped to his death, then another and another, and then dozens more. Having left their herds to graze while they ate breakfast, stunned Turkish shepherds now watched as nearly 1,500 others leapt off the same cliff. The first 450 animals died under the billowy pile. All they were doing was following the tail in front of them. Now, it's not hard to see that in the Scriptures, we're the sheep. We're wired to keep our heads down and to follow the tail in front of us. And we have to be careful about that, careful about following the tail in front of us. We have to be discerning. We have to study the Word of God for ourselves. We have to apply ancient biblical truths to every situation. We need, in fact, having used that word ancient, we have to be wary of new teachers, new ideas. There are no new ideas. King Solomon said it 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, he said, there's nothing new under the sun. Imagine how much truer that is today. We need to be wary of new ideas, and we need to embrace instead. There are no new ideas. There are only ancient truths. Hebrews 13, 8, Jesus is the same. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And by the way, so is sin, the same yesterday, today, and forever. No new sins. All, all, all the deviations we see today, all the heresies that are taught, 
Nothing new in any of them. We've seen them all before. The devil is using the same strategies he's always used, and he can continue to use those strategies because they still work on us. We still have our heads down. We're still just following the tail in front of us. We need to be wary of teachers with new ideas. We need to be wary of contemporary interpretations of the Bible. We need to stop, listen, stop buying in to every post we see on Facebook that some friend has posted. And instead, verse 17, you underlined it hopefully, we need to be obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Get into God's Word. Be committed to the Word. Don't reject it actively or passively. And, and when I'm committed to the Word, I'll be, this is the next um, point here, increasing in sanctification, not increasing in sin. Now, does that describe you? Are you increasing in sanctification? Do you see progress happening in your life? Are you closer to Jesus today than you were a year ago? Verse 19 continues, For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, he's just recounting for the Romans their own testimony. He's saying, Before you were saved... Remember that? You were adding sin upon sin. It's never just one sin. Sins always compound. That's what an unrepentant, unregenerate sinner does. Sinners sin. It's their best thing. The two things, as we, as we continue through this, two things are coming into very sharp focus as we study through Romans. For those who have been saved by Jesus, it's not about rule-keeping anymore. That's the whole deal with what Paul says about the law. It's not about rule-keeping anymore. In verse 15, we learn that we're not under law, which was given to point out our sin. It's not there to set an impossible standard for us to reach. No one can keep the law. We know that. There's no way that by keeping the law, we're going to satisfy God in any way. So it's not about rule-keeping anymore, but also the lack of rule-keeping does not give us a license to sin. Paul says, verse 19, so now, now that you're saved, okay, I get what it was like before you were saved. You were a sinner, you sinned, you compounded sin. That was the way it was. But now that you're saved, notice how active this is how intentional it is, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And while we can't be saved by keeping the law, the law nevertheless reflects the moral character of God who saved us. Let me say that again. While we can't be saved by keeping the law, the law nevertheless reflects the moral character of the God who saved us. That's why we study the Old Testament. That's why we look at these stories. That's why we study intensely what God was revealing to Israel. Because in all of that, we're seeing the character of God being revealed to us. 
And we should be aspiring. We must be aspiring to that same moral character, that same godliness. Now, this is the first indication Paul's kind of getting us to the place where we understand this. And we, and we talked about the tension of this last week. But this is the first indication that there's something for us between these, these words that we're learning, justification, the point at which I come to faith in Christ, and, and glorification. Between the moment I'm saved and the moment when I see Jesus at my death, I'm in process of becoming like Him. That process is called sanctification. That's the word used here. So if I want to understand the power of the gospel, let's look at each of these words, and hopefully this will be helpful. It's not the first time I've shared this with you. But justification is a past event. It's a, it's, it speaks to my positional salvation. At that moment that I become a Christian, I am declared by God to be righteous, and that's the way God sees me because Jesus Christ Himself forgave all my sins. Jesus' blood was shed to take care of all my sins, past, present, and future. So God sees me as a righteous one because of the blood of Jesus. And I can legitimately say I was saved. I was saved, past tense. But sanctification is a present event. In fact, we could say it's a present continuous event. It's progressive. It describes progressive salvation. Um, I would rightly say that I'm becoming righteous or I am being saved. This is where you and I are living right now. If you can hear my voice, if you're on the live stream or you're watching this on demand this week, you're still alive, still breathing, still on planet earth, have not yet passed from this life to the next. If that's true of you, then you're right here. You're in this, this, this process of, set, of becoming righteous. And then finally, glorification is a future event. It uh, reflects perfected salvation, and I actually become righteous, and I can rightly say I will be saved. And this is where it gets real for us. That chart, by the way, is, is, is in the notes for you. But this is where it gets real for us because that middle section, sanctification, again, that's where we're living right now. And this is the hard part of choosing every day not to be re-enslaved to sin, but rather to give our life, lives um, to enjoy the freedom that Jesus Christ has gained for us. This other chart might be helpful in understanding this a little bit more um, as well, and this came from our Second Thessalonians series just a couple of years ago. And you can see um, in the best case scenario, uh, you can see the moment at which the point of conversion, that's justification, and then you can see glorification in the, in the top corner of that chart. You can see that I was once dead in sin, but at the point of conversion, I'm uh, now saved. But you can see the progressive growth, the sanctification. I'm, I'm slowly climbing up. In the best case scenario, the process of sanctific- sanctification, it's always growing up. And that's, I'm, I'm becoming more like Jesus, but not perfectly. It's, it's not even because I'm still duking it out with sin. It's still a struggle. Some days I fail. Sometimes I make a bad decision. I still need to ask God for forgiveness. I'm still growing in these things. But it should be going up. And we're going to talk about the struggle of living out this gospel life when we get to Romans 7, 7 to 25. Because this is a struggle for every one of us. Please don't think that it's just you. 
we should be increasing in sanctification. The graph line going up, however choppy it might be. All right, let's keep going. You know, repetition is a key teaching strategy. Any teachers here, you know that. Repetition is a key strategy, and Paul is employing it effectively here. He brings us back to the key thought, saying that I am to be free from sin, not free to sin. Free from sin, not free to sin. Verse 20, for when you were slaves of sin, before you were a Christian again, you were free in regard to righteousness. That is to say, you could do as you pleased. Because you weren't saved. You weren't under the obligation to choose righteousness the way that a Christian is. And this, by the way, if we could just stop on this point for a moment, this is the principal argument why, as a Christian, I'm not to impose my moral code or my Christian worldview or my biblical ethic, I'm not to impose any of that on anyone who isn't also a Christian. If you're testifying to Jesus Christ and not living righteously, I can call you out. You can call me out if I'm not living righteously. We're both Christians. We're both both upholding the standard of God's righteousness. We're both saying that we're in the process of being sanctified. But if someone is not a Christian, I'm not trying to reform them morally. If the people next door to me are unmarried and my ethic around marriage is that you ought to be married to live together, but if they're not married, I'm not going to impose my righteousness on them. If they're gay, if they're Hindu, if they hold wild parties, if they smoke cannabis, if they're far-left hippies, or they're gun-toting right-wing wackos, it's of no account. I must be kind to them. I must love them in Jesus' name, and and I can even be friends with them, and I'm certainly not going to try and reform their morality. I shouldn't be reforming them in regard, to use Paul's language, in regard to righteousness. I should. I should try to introduce them to Jesus. But introducing someone to Jesus and trying to reform their choices are two very different things. And in fact, if we promote morality for the unsaved, we're preaching a false gospel. Now back to verse 21. But what fruit were you getting at that time? You know, before you were saved at that time. What fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? In other words, we look back at our life pre-Jesus, and we look at the emptiness of it. We look at how our life before Jesus was a, a dead end. We look at the turmoil. We look at the lostness. We look at the hurt. And we know, as Paul says here, that the end of all of those things was death. And for some of us, in fact, that was the catalyst to lead us into a relationship with Christ. And I saw this this quote from Augustine this week, and and I thought it was so appropriate for this moment. Without God, what am I but a guide to my own destruction? I needed the Lord to intervene in my life in the crisis to lead me to a place of surrender. 
Because my life before Jesus, this is Paul's point, my life before Jesus was going nowhere good. And here's the point. That's all behind us. Again, speaking to the Christians. That's all behind us. Verse 22, now now you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God. And that, of course, leads to something awesome. Because when I believe the gospel and choose to live a righteous life, here's the last point. I'm anticipating eternal life, not second death. One of two destinations. Again, every person watching this video, hearing my voice right now, is either on the path to heaven and eternity with Christ, or you're on the path to hell and eternal separation from God, which is an unimaginable and indescribable horror. I, I know that we live in a culture that, and even in churches, that are reticent to speak about hell. We have these progressive sensibilities about us now, but having those sensibilities does not neglect the reality of our eternal destiny. Every person is holding a ticket. Every person is on a journey. And every person is holding a ticket to one destination or another. What ticket do you have? What are you anticipating at the end of the trip? Where are you going to end up? Paul writes, verse 22, continues, the fruit you get leads to sanctification. If you cultivate this life of being slaves of God, slaves of obedience, you will bear the fruit of that. And you will be, as we've seen, increasingly over the course of a lifetime, more righteous. That's the point of the graph that we looked at earlier. And if you're not seeing that, if you're not growing in holiness, if you're not increasing in faith, if you're not advancing in righteousness, then a key facet of the gospel is not in evidence of your life. And at that point, there's really only three possibilities. One is that no matter how moral you might be or how religious you might think you are, it's possible that you're not saved yet. That you don't have the Holy Spirit working in you to convict you of sin. And my appeal appeal to you is to give your life to Jesus Christ right now. There's a second possibility is that you, you do hold the right ticket, but you haven't learned these things yet. So secondly, it may be that you're young in the faith, that this is all new to you, and that's a good place to be in. I was in that place where I had a lack of understanding of what was really sinful and what wasn't. But I had given my life to Christ. Some of the the most challenging, scarring decisions I made as a teenager were made after I made my commitment to Christ. God was so merciful and kind to me, but I was young in the faith. You need to make decisions now as I needed to make when I was a new Christian. You need to make decisions right now to live a righteous life and to allow the gospel of Jesus Christ to transform you. The third possibility is that you're a Christian, 
but you're in open rebellion against God. Any Christian in the Scriptures, some Christians that I have known personally who were in open rebellion against God faced devastating consequences as the Lord disciplined them. If you're a Christian who's in open rebellion against God, you need to repent and recommit yourself to a life of righteousness. James 4.17 says very simply, whoever knows the right thing to do and does not do it, to him it is sin. If you know the right thing that you ought to do, there's a compounding sin going on in your life. Not only are you committing the sin, but you're committing the sin of knowing it's a sin and not repenting of it. Some of you may need to get on your knees right after this message and repent. Confess some things to God. Because any true believer, as we saw in last week's passage, just dipping into a couple of verses there, every true believer has been set free from sin. That's verse 7 of of Romans 6. And, And verse 9 says, and sin no longer has dominion over him or her. If sin is gripping your heart, confess it to God. Because here's what's at stake. The fruit you get, Paul says, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. Then underline this verse, verse 23. For the wages of sin is death. If you're not yet a believer, the wages of your sin is death. Physical death. For sure, we all experience that. The consequence of sin in the world is we're all going to face physical death, but, but it's more than that. We're talking here about um, the unbeliever at the final judgment facing what the Apostle John records as second death on three occasions in the book of Revelation. Final separation from God forever. Verse 23 continues, but the good news is this, the gospel is this, the free gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ, Christ Jesus our Lord. The free gift, the free, the free grace of God can be yours if you believe, if you call in the name of the Lord. And the call is simple. This is what we've been looking at throughout this message. This is very simply, believe the gospel and choose to live the righteous life of a believer. Let me pray for us. Father, um, where there needs to be surrender, uh, Father, let us surrender. Where there needs to be repentance, Father, I, I pray that we would agree with you in turn. Where there needs to be sorrow for sin, Father, I pray that we would grieve our decisions and our actions. And Father, where there needs to be rejoicing at righteousness gained, where there there needs to be gratitude for progress made by the power of your Holy Spirit, I pray, God, that we would rejoice and we would be grateful. Thank you, Father, for your patience with us. Thank you for being so forgiving. Thank you for your grace and your mercy, which gets poured out on us every day. And God, empower us by your Holy Spirit to make these choices consistent with who we are in Christ. And we pray in his name. Amen.